Ukraine's use of militias, including territorial defense forces and their international legion, is not only tactically important, it's also an information warfare success. Russia's use of militias has been quite different, and that is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and former instructor for the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and adjunct faculty for the U.S. Naval War College. This series of podcasts introduces the enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now when the world is facing war again. Contrary to certain commentators on new rules of warfare, the old ways of war are not dead. Ukraine clearly demonstrates that conventional war is still with us, and the likelihood of conventional war beyond Ukraine is a clear and present danger. Similarly, the will and spirit of the Ukrainian people demonstrate that hearts and minds do matter, and that as Napoleon, Clausewitz, Lincoln, and Churchill noted, the will and spirit can overcome significant disadvantages in numbers alone. The international order is still built on nation-states, and finally the laws and customs of war are still relevant and affect all elements of national power. Other factors listed as new rules are actually enduring features of war. They are present in Ukraine as they have been in so-called conventional war since societies began organized violence. These include the presence of mercenaries, insurgent warfare, and the importance of fighting to secure a lasting peace, and how easy it is to miss that objective. All of these ideas feature in Russia's use of militias and mercenaries in Ukraine. I'm going to start by apologizing that these recent podcasts have run longer than I would like. This one is going to be no exception. The Russian use of irregular military forces is like one of those Russian dolls, with another doll inside of it and so on. It is complex and at times seems to defy logic. I will try to cover this as simply as possible without oversimplifying. And some people will think that this will be too simple while others will think it's too complex. But here goes. To set the stage, I'll repeat the purpose of the laws and customs of war which I introduced in the last episode. The purpose of the law of war is to protect combatants, non-combatants, and civilians from unnecessary suffering to provide certain fundamental protections for persons who fall into the hands of the enemy, whether they are civilians or military, to assist military commanders in ensuring the disciplined and efficient use of military force, and to preserve the professionalism and humanity of combatants, facilitating the restoration of peace. That last element is the overarching purpose. In short, the rational and disciplined use of military force to bring about a just and lasting peace. Even two centuries ago, Clausewitz noted that wanton destruction and terrorization of the civilian population is not an efficient use of military power, and it will create long-lasting hatreds that will certainly bring about future conflict. The last episode described how Ukraine is trying to use militias in a way that is consistent with the intents and purposes of the law of war. Ukraine isn't perfect, no one is but they're trying to do the right thing. Ukraine's prosecutor general announced the formation of teams to investigate claims of war crimes and other violations of the law of war, not only looking at claims against Russia, but also looking at allegations of misconduct by their own military. 
she promised that credible allegations will be dealt with by military tribunals and other courts. Russia, however, seems to have a different attitude. To see how that attitude is different, I'll discuss these pro-Russian irregular forces according to the qualifications to be a legitimate belligerent under the laws and customs of war. I described these in the presentation of Ukrainian militias, so I'll only repeat the main points here. These are to be commanded by a person responsible for his or her subordinates, to have a fixed distinctive emblem recognizable at a distance, to carry arms openly, and to conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. Russian use of militias and mercenaries fall into several categories, each problematic regarding the law of war and securing a just and lasting peace. Pro-Russian fighters include the militias of the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, international volunteers, and mercenaries and quasi-mercenary organizations, such as the general grouping popularly known as the Wagner Group. The two statelets set up by Moscow in 2014 each have their own militaries made up of various militias established under Russian sponsorship. These were intended to appear as a spontaneous support of an independence movement in eastern Ukraine. However, Russia both overestimated local sentiment in favor of Russia and underestimated Ukraine's determination to resist. Russia was also surprised that many ethnic Russian and Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine were unenthusiastic about the separatist movement. This required Russia to more overtly support the separatists, to keep them from being defeated by the Ukrainian armed forces and their militias in the Donbass region. Since 2016, when the regions around Donetsk and Luhansk became relatively stable, Russian forces used these pro-Russian militias as an economy of force, keeping Russian troops out of sight but ready to intervene. The separatist militias went under reorganization, some becoming smaller, some larger, some being completely absorbed by other units, and most, but not all, coming under the overall command of the Donetsk or Luhansk military structure. In Donetsk, their armed forces are supposed to exist as a single entity, operating as a corps under the Russian 8th Combined Arms Army. The reality is somewhat different. Donetsk operates with over a dozen independent militia formations. These include units of company-to-brigade designations known as the Republican Guard, Diesel, Berkut, Oplot, Vostok, the Russian Orthodox Army, which is also active in the Luhansk People's Republic, Sparta, Somalia, and Veryag. Veryag is the Slavic name for Vikings and was also the name of a World War II SS unit made up of ethnic Russians. Some of these units operate as independent formations, some as companies within other Donetsk military units. The rest of the Donetsk military consists of more traditionally numbered functional companies and battalions. The Luhansk People's Militia includes numbered motorized rifle brigades and so-called separate units, such as the Cossack Guard, which is a Russian ethnic Orthodox extremist group, and the Pritzrak, or Ghost, Battalion. Unlike Ukraine's militia units, separatist militias are not all light infantry. Many of them are equipped with tanks, armored personnel carriers, and artillery, all supplied by Moscow. Since 2014, Russian-sponsored forces include foreign fighters from other former Soviet states and individual volunteers from Europe and beyond. Some of these are adventurers. Some are pure mercenaries looking for a lucrative paycheck. Some have political motivations. 
Now, that last category includes supporting pan-Slavic loyalty or perceiving Russia as the defender of causes associated with right-wing or neo-fascist ideology. Collectively, these units are sometimes called interbrigades. Serbians, French, Italians, Germans, Czechs, Slovaks, Bulgarians, and citizens of various former Soviet states serve either as individuals or in small nationally affiliated units. Since 2014, some of the names of these smaller national contingents include the Orthodox Dawn, made up of Bulgarian volunteers, Hungarians in the Legion of St. Stephen, Serbians in the Jovan Sevic Detachment, the French in Unité Continentale, and Spaniards in the Carlos Palmino International Brigade. It's unclear how many of these continue as independent formations and how many have been absorbed into other Russian separatist units. Separate from all of these is the great host of Don Cossacks. The Cossacks are a semi-autonomous people who operate as a nation within the Russian nation. The Cossacks are organized on military lines where every able-bodied male is an active member of the militia. I covered the Cossacks in more detail in a previous episode. They fought in the capture of Crimea in 2014 and have been fighting in the Donbass since then, always on the side of Russia, without being directly subordinate to Moscow. I should note that the Don Cossacks are not the only Cossack group, and some Cossacks are pro-Ukrainian. Now, none of these units represent a coherent military force, but they're a conglomerate of disparate forces, some of which may be considered part of the Donetsk or Luhansk military establishment, and some remain outside of any pretense of formal command and control. Many of these have different and sometimes antithetical reasons for fighting. They may consider themselves pan-Slavic neo-pagan, Russian Orthodox, Russian imperialist, communist, neo-Nazi, even anti-Moscow. They are loyal to themselves and their leaders rather than to their putative government or even to Moscow. Although these units wear recognizable uniforms and other insignia and carry arms openly in battle, they do not meet the other two criteria to be legitimate combatants. It's hard to argue that they meet the first requirement in any realistic manner. That is, being under the command of an officer responsible to a higher legal authority for his or her subordinates and the activities of his or her command. The unit commanders may have absolute control over their immediate subordinates, but it's unrealistic to believe that these commanders are, in turn, accountable to the civilian government or maybe even under the strict control by Russian army commanders. Without accountability under the law, it can be expected that they do not conduct themselves according to the law, whether the law of war or human rights law. From the beginning of the fighting in the Donbass and into the present conflict, all of these units have been cited for violations of the law of armed conflict and human rights law, and the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has concluded that both war crimes and crimes against humanity were committed in Donbass. The most notorious of the international volunteer units is the Chechen Kadyrov militia. This unit works directly for the Russian military command rather than as a part of the Donetsk or Luhansk militias. This Chechen militia was reportedly contracted to assassinate President Zelensky and appear to be currently deployed behind the front line of troops to keep pro-Russian forces from breaking and running. The use of such units, called barrier troops, is a long-standing Russian practice going back to the Russian Civil War and the Second World War. The brutality associated with the Kadyrov militia in past conflicts is legendary, and their use today may be a form of psychological warfare. 
intended to instill fear and terror into the minds of Ukrainian armed forces, the civilian population, and even pro-Russian elements. These units, whether operating under Donetsk, Luhansk, or directly under Russian control, lack political unity or purpose. It should be no surprise that they have been unable to reliably coordinate military campaigns. On their own, they were unable to defeat the pre-Reformation Ukrainian army, and they performed even worse since the Ukrainian army's modernization. The character of these forces doesn't seem to promote the rational and disciplined use of military force. So why are the Russians using such forces, or even allowing such forces to operate as part of their special military operation? Back in 2014, the appearance of these units intended to create the impression of a popular uprising of the Russian-speaking population against the Ukrainian government in Kiev. This idea is still promoted by Russia today. Use of these militias as frontline troops promotes an impression that Russia's special military operations is supported by the local populace. This use also lets those forces absorb the casualties of frontline fighting. That is a serious consideration for Russia in light of how the war has been going for them so far. Russian troops remain available to intervene should their militias collapse. This maintains pressure on Ukraine while Russian forces prepare for their next phase of fighting. Another advantage is that it allows Russia a degree of deniability for any tactical defeats and for any war crimes committed by these separatist militias. One could make the case that Russia doesn't care about war crimes. On the other hand, Moscow denies any war crimes, saying such reports are unfounded propaganda based on dubious sources and are built on logical stretches. So, the ability to deflect charges to separatist militias could be useful for Moscow. To repeat, Moscow uses these forces for three main reasons. One, to promote a perception of the legitimacy of the separatist cause. Two, as an economy of force, either by performing secondary tasks, freeing the regular forces for decisive operations, or to absorb casualties, thereby shielding the regular forces from such losses. Three, to avoid accountability for actions taken in support of policy objectives. Tasks 1 and 3, legitimacy and avoiding accountability, are common to any proxy warfare. Tasks 2 and 3 also apply to the use of mercenaries. All three together characterize the Russian use of militias. Now, these tasks are only successful if they are enabled by a compliant opponent. A compliant opponent is one that does not have a robust information operations capability and does not have the strength of arms and will to decisively crush the proxy militia forces. Now, Ukraine has a very robust information campaign going, aided by private sector interests in the West. It does not, however, currently have the capability to decisively crush the Russian-supplied and supported separatist militias. The ability to do that will depend upon whether the United States and Europe will give the Ukrainian armed forces the assistance it needs before Russia is ready to launch a decisive combined arms campaign. In summary, the particulars of Russian and Ukrainian use of militias are very different. Despite this difference, there are some general similarities in why and how these forces are used. These similarities reflect the use of auxiliary or irregular forces throughout history. This, of course, is the point of these podcasts, showing how the essential elements of war are unchanging, 
merely adapting its appearances or characteristics according to time, circumstances, and society. Militias and auxiliaries have been an essential component of the military element of national power throughout history. Militias and auxiliaries often do things the regular army cannot do or act as an economy of force, enabling a more effective or efficient use of the regular forces. The way these militias and auxiliaries act as an element of a nation's military power will reflect the goals, objectives, values, and strategic vision of the nation that is using them. The danger is that forces that do not fulfill the criteria of a legitimate belligerent under the law of war undermines the disciplined and efficient use of military force and threatens the restoration of a just and lasting peace. The most notorious of all of these irregular forces are the Russian quasi-mercenary organizations, sometimes collectively known as the Wagner Group. Who these are, what they do, and how they can help the Russian cause and harm the prospects for peace will be covered in the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.